I don't want you to get the idea that I'm trying to keep pace with all the malls and what's going on in our stores here, but uh, um, what, what is going on? I mean, I had to go to Home Depot and pick up some stuff. I walk in, and I mean, it's Christmas wonderland. I mean, they had lights and trees, and I mean, they had everything just Christmas. I'm just trying to walk in there, and I'm like, man, I'm looking for Santa. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's everywhere. I had to go to Walmart, pick up a few things. What have they done to the lawn and gardens part? It's all gone, and all, it's like Christmas trees and lights everywhere. I'm like, what's happened? Now, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to keep pace, but I do for just a couple minutes. I want you to think about Charles Dickens' story, A Christmas Carol. And so we've cranked down the AC. If you've noticed that, I was unable to get the snowflakes to come down. I thought that'd be really cool, but it was not the budget. So anyway, I want you to be thinking about A Christmas Story. And in that uh, Charles Dickens story, uh, it all gets started here with this guy, Ebenezer Scrooge. What a great name, huh? Ebenezer Scrooge. And you find out at the very beginning that he's, he's a, just a crotchety guy. He's mean-spirited, uh, doesn't have a lot of compassion, like zero in that category. And what this story does, it shows you the ideological, ethical, and emotional transformation that takes place with Ebenezer Scrooge. So what takes place is uh, he is eventually going to be visited by his former business partner, a guy by the name of Jacob Marley, who died seven years ago. And then there's going to be these three different ghosts that are going to be making their appearances. The ghosts of Christmas past, present, and Christmas yet to come. So the tale begins. Uh, it's Christmas Eve. It's the seventh anniversary of the death of his business partner, Jacob Marley. And you see just how crotchety and mean and lack of compassion this Ebenezer Scrooge is. And what takes place is he goes to bed eventually and he has this dream and his ghost appears to him and it's his former business partner absolutely warning, you got to change your ways, Ebenezer Scrooge. Well, then becomes, comes a series of these ghosts. The first one uh, that appears to him is the ghost of Christmas past. And you see these scenes from Ebenezer's early life and it turns out that, why, he was a pleasant young man. And uh, you see this scene where he's kind of full of life and yet he's got this He's got this beautiful girl named Belle that he's actually engaged to, but, but trouble has happened. You see, you find out that Ebenezer very much never wanted to become poor. And what happened is, that, you know, that's reasonable. You don't want to be poor. And yet uh, it becomes a consuming passion for him, an unreasonable passion to gain wealth. And so much so that even though he's engaged to this beautiful gal... She breaks off the engagement and he doesn't fight for her because you know why? He's got another love in his life. It's called money. Well, he goes back to sleep and he's, he's, he's dreaming. And next thing you know, the ghost of Christmas present comes. And this ghost then takes him to different scenes that had just kind of taken place. Like, for instance, in the marketplace where people were getting ready for the Christmas, their Christmas dinner. He takes him, this ghost of Christmas present, takes him to one of his employees, a guy by the name of Bob Cratchit. Well, what a great last name. And he sees Bob, and Bob is nearly impoverished himself, and he's got his wife, and he has his six kids. And they have, one of their kids is Tiny Tim. And he's, Tiny Tim is in bad shape, and he's, um, he's actually in a situation where his life may end soon, and he's deformed, and, and what? Ebenezer sees is this family celebrating Christmas and and even the heart in the midst of the difficulties, some of which caused by Ebenezer. And he has to witness this. And they 
This ghost takes him to some other scenes, goes to a lighthouse and a miner's cottage. And then, as he continues to sleep, then comes the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Christmas future. And Ebenezer then sees the outworking of his life and the great misery. In fact, it culminates with him seeing his own grave, unintended, uh, untended. No one cares for it. And he realizes, and he actually makes the statement that he will change his ways, for he must. For like what Dickens writes, he's trying to change so that the shadows of what may be never come about. And what you see is that the seeds of the love of money, they were planted very early. You know, but they were not just planted, they were nurtured. And they were cultivated this quest and lust for wealth. And actually, in the case of Ebenezer Scrooge, he even sacrificed to this idol of wealth. He gave up a potential great marriage to a great gal. And that shows you just how powerful it is when your God is money. What Dickens does... He paints in a full-color picture, and he does so with black and white words so that we realize just how powerful it is when money is your master and the devastating consequences that come from that. Well, that's Charles Dickens. But when you come to the book of James, in James chapter 5, what you're going to find is James gives the most dire of warnings. As you've been walking through this book, have you noticed there's been one obstacle after another obstacle to a maturing faith in Christ that James addresses, but it's as if the deadliest of traps call for the most drastic of warnings, and that's what you've got here in James chapter 5. James is addressing this most troublesome barrier to a maturing faith in Christ, and that is the alluring love of wealth. You see, every one of us has to actually figure this out. Who is our master? Is it money or is it Jesus? Now, before you answer too quickly, you're like, I mean, you're at church. You're like, I bet the answer is Jesus. I'm going to say that. Before you answer too quickly, let's take a few minutes to see what James has to say about this God called wealth. I'll tell you, I, you, apart from a radical work of God's grace in our lives, we likely will take wealth as our master and it'll have some devastating and eternally destructive effects on our life so you see what we do with money reveals much about the master we serve and so let's take a look at it james chapter 5 beginning in verse 1 i want you to see this when money is your master you hoard and you live with a self-centered earthly perspective let's take a look at it james 5 Verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Now, what James is doing, it's a rhetorical device called an apostrophe. And what you do is you turn away from your real audience and you summon or you address another group. But you do so as a teaching tool. And that's what's happening here. There's this apostrophe. And he says, come now, you rich. I want you to weep and howl because your miseries are soon coming upon you. You see, wealth and money, when it becomes your God, it, it leads and brings about the very worst in people. 
All you have to do is read your Bible to see examples of that. I mean, you got a guy by the name of Achan, and he loves money and possessions so much, he forsakes the word of the Lord, and it leads to his own death and even the death of his family. If you've ever read the New Testament in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, there is a, a couple. I believe they were a lovely couple, early church, new believers, and they were growing, and they were part of the early church, and their name is Ananias and Sapphira. And they had, they had made a vow to the Lord that they were going to sell some land, and they were going to give all of the proceeds, all of the money, they were going to give it to the church. They were going to actually lay it at the apostles' feet because they wanted to see the kingdom of the work, kingdom of the Lord at work. And they made this vow, but you know how it is. Whoa, we even got more money than we were expecting. You know, <laughs> no one's going to know. We're just like, we'll just hold off some of this. There's no problem with that, right? But if you've made a vow to the Lord, I want you to understand that God knows the intent of the heart and the intent that he placed in your heart and how you responded as such. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, if you want to know how seriously God takes finances and your commitment to using them for his work, this couple actually has died. God actually puts them to death. Why? Because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the most treacherous act uh, ever done because of the love of money would be was the materialist Judas. Judas, for 30 pieces of silver... He sold out Jesus. He went to the chief priest and said, hey, what will you give me if I, if I somehow just turn him over to you? And I said, how about 30 pieces of silver? Will that be you? And Judas took it. Friends, you see, the love of the money, love of money, it's deceitful and it's dangerous. And if it is left unconquered by Christ in your heart, it's going to be eternally destructive. Now, I want you to know something. There, okay, it's like totally dead silent here. Do you notice that? Let me tell you why. Because we are all wealthy Compared to the rest of the world, we got all sorts of money, don't we? And I want you to understand something. James is not bringing an indictment against wealth or having money. The Bible actually never does that. There is no data in the Bible to support this idea that if you've got money or you're wealthy, that it's wrong. Actually, the contrary is shown. It says like in Proverbs 10, 22, it is the blessing of the Lord who makes rich, that makes rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. If you've got money and resources, and but your God is not the money and your resources, but it's the one true living God, not only has he the one that's blessed you and you get it, he actually allows you to enjoy it. Because that's the nature of God. He's gracious and he's giving. And there are a lot of people in the Bible that we would have to put in the category of wealthy. And they, yet, they walk with God. Let me just give you some. Abraham, Job, Joseph, David, uh, Joseph, Nicodemus, Mary and Martha, Lazarus, Joseph of Marathia, Barnabas, uh, Lydia, Philemon. I mean, there were all sorts of people that had a great degree of wealth, and yet they walked with God. The problem is not having wealth. The problem is when wealth has you, when it blots out your love for God and for others. And so he says... You better start now weeping and howling if you are rich and your God is your wealth. And he's using terminology that you find when God brings judgment, when people actually then face the reality of that judgment, there is this weeping and crying and howling and this gnashing of teeth. You see, if you're wealthy and your God is your money, you actually think you're living the good life right now. And you're doing everything you can to squeeze life out of your what your resources can buy. But you need to understand Life keeps going. 
this is just but a dot on the line of eternity. You will spend eternity somewhere. And what he's saying is, if your God is well, your judgment is about to come. It might, you might try to put a happy face on it now, but I can assure you it'll be weeping and howling. Furthermore, he says, verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. He's saying there, like, what happens in, like, wealth, and wealth in the New Testament about 2,000 years ago, let me tell you how it was measured. It was uh, measured in terms of, like, land and grain and oil, other produce, clothing, gold, and silver. And he's saying, your clothing, you got so much of it, and that what you do is you never actually wear it, and so moths get into it, and they eat it up and tear it up. So have you ever heard of, like, mothballs? And don't raise your hand if you're using them. There's some things pastors shouldn't know, okay? But you know those mothballs, man, they have, they have such a just pugnant odor. I, I remember my grandparents, you know, lived out on the farm. And what you do is like the winter clothing, they kind of put it in boxes and they put these mothballs in there. And man, I mean, you can tell when the winter clothing's out, you know? In fact, I could walk through there like, Ooh, oh man, it's strong, right? And it has to be because mothballs, what they do, these strong chemicals, they kill bugs like silverfish and moths. And if you're using mothballs, that's all fine. In fact, we'll sell some out in the foyer if you need to. But I don't want your clothes to rot. But you know why? You, you know, if you wear your clothes on a regular basis, they don't, you're not going to be having a lot of moth problems. The rich, they're just piling and accumulating. They, they're not thinking about how these resources could be used for God or for his kingdom or for caring for the poor. No, no, no. And he's saying, your moth, your garments, they're moth-eaten. They're eating, getting torn away. Verse 3, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. So he's talking about like gold and silver, like gold can get, uh, get darkened and, and silver can be tarnished. And there are, these metals lose their luster because after all, they're just a, the, these wealthy people who have no focus on God, and they're not truly a worshiper of him. They're just kind of collecting and gathering stuff for themselves. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19? Listen to, listen to what he said. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But do this. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me just ask you, where's your treasure? When I ask you, where do you find your sense of well-being and security and identity and hope? And what gets you really excited? If it's like, man, I got money and I got a bank account and I'm really glad because I've got security in this life. Friends, you are in trouble. This passage is God's word for you. It is a huge warning. You got the wrong God. On the other hand, you're like, man, my hope is in Jesus. I am believing in him. I am trusting in him. My hope and sense of pure security and identity and peace is not in the resources that I might have. It is the one in whom I know. It's him. And so he says, notice in verse 3, if you were rich, that would be all of us, and this wealth is your God, one day, he says, this is going to be like evidence marshaled against you. That you didn't really trust in the one true triune God. It'll be a witness against you and it will consume your flesh. And that's what he's bringing to mind here. Now, I know some of you are actually a little bit unnerved at this point. You're probably wondering about this question. Whoa, I'm saving money. Is this me? 
Is it wrong to save? Oh, this is good. If you're thinking about it, and you should, is it wrong to save? Well, I want to tell you clearly from the scripture, it is not wrong to save. In fact, the book of Proverbs actually encourages you to do that. And let me tell you why. You see, when, we're, when, you, when you save money, you actually do so with a God-centered perspective. When you come with a, seeing yourself as a steward and you save money, there's all sorts of benefits that take place. For instance, you demonstrate good stewardship and you recognize that these are resources entrusted to me by God. When you save, it puts you in a situation where you can actually help the needs of others. And so when we actually encounter a situation where another has a need, if you've never saved anything in your life, you're not going to be much help, are you? Because you don't have any resources. When you save, uh, it actually under, you understand that sometimes God provides through other people for people. You're in a position to do that. And it's a responsible preparation for tomorrow. And furthermore, when you save, when you develop margins in your life financially, what it does is it promotes wise spending decisions. Like, I got it, I got to spend it, which is what most Americans do. No, there's a lot of benefits to saving. And when you do so, you're saving as, a, as a, a one who trusts God and, a, and you're a manager, a steward of his resources. It can be a very healthy thing. That's not what James is after here. What he's talking about here is the dangers of hoarding. You see, when you hoard, you see yourself as a king or queen in your own little kingdom. When you hoard, it fosters a sense of earthly security and independence from God because, after all, I need this. It's mine. It's my sense of identity and purpose. It buys things for me. When you hoard, it gives you a sense of superiority to others. Like, I've got I've got money. This is my money. I'm, I'm better than you. That doesn't You don't have as much as me. And furthermore, uh, when you're hoarding, it assumes that what you have, you've gained for your own personal benefit. And notice what he says in verse 3. There are devastating effects. You see, the problem here with the people that are hoarding money is that when your God is wealth, it distorts everything about you, including your morals. Look at, look at verse 4. Look at the hoarding that he's talking about here, the kind of greedy individual. Verse 4, he says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. So what you see here is that the reason that they're hoarding money is because they love so money that it actually distorts their understanding that you've got to pay your employees. What's taking place here is that the rich, because they're so distorted by their idol of wealth, they oppress, they defraud, and they exploit the people that they should be paying. They're so consumed by keeping money for themselves that even though that they owe you, they have an obligation to pay their laborers a fair wage and what's been agreed upon, what happens is a love of money actually puts you in a situation where you're just not going to do that. And so you exploit and you hold back wages. And let me help you understand what's going here. Um, in the New Testament times, biblical times even, uh, most people lived day to day. What you earned that day basically was your provision. And so you see this. The scriptures make it very clear. You pay them each day. And that's because they're counting on it. They are living on it. That's the agreement that you have. 
And if you want some text on that, Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning in verse 14, let me just read it to you so you understand where James is coming from. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land or in your town, whether they've been living there for a long time or they're, they're foreigners and they're new. If they've worked, you pay what you agreed upon, period. You shall give them his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and has set his, sets his heart on it, so that he may not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. You see, that's what happens. You withhold, God hears their cry, and it becomes sin in you. And you see, what happens is greed hides itself from those it possesses. That's why they're hoarding. That's why they're withholding the payments that are justly due to the people that are working for them. Greed hides itself from those who possess it, those who it possesses. You've probably seen that. Greedy people never see themselves as greedy. Did you know that? Because it, it's, it's hidden in their heart, and it distorts them, and they can't see it. I heard a joke about a young man who had a really, really cool BMW, and it was sleek. And he was, you know, out there racing it on the roads. And, and he took this one curve way too wildly. And he was going to go over. And so he somehow jumps out of the car as the car then goes off the cliff. And as he did so, his left arm was severed from his body. And he gets up and he stands and he looks down the cliff. And there's his BMW all just tore up. And he's like, oh, no, my car, my car. Well, there's a guy that sees this wreck that just happened. He pulls out and he goes, Whoa, look at your arm. What are, what are you doing crying about your car? And he said, my arm. And he looks and he doesn't see his left arm. He goes, oh no, my Rolex watch, my Rolex watch. <laughs> and you're like, okay, that's a joke, you know, right? And you know why that's funny though? Because that's what happens when your idol is wealth. Even when parts of your body are gone, you're thinking about, oh no, my car. Or my watch. He says, you see this in verse 4? There's injustice that's taking place when you defraud people, when you exploit them. And notice what he says. The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, you withheld that. It's been withheld by you. It cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. You see, it's, it's, it's bringing to mind the very first act of injustice in our world. Anybody happen to know where it is? Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. And Cain kills Abel. And do you remember what God said to Cain? The blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. I hear it. I see it. And I'm going to deal with it. It also brings to mind the people of Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt and Pharaoh and all of his army were just bringing it down and oppressing the people of Israel and abusing them and defrauding them. And they were groaning and crying out to God. And God says, finally, I've had enough and I hear the cries of my people and I am coming and I will bring judgment. And so he does. He's the Lord of the Sabaoth. A frequent term used of God, it, it re really, it means the Lord of hosts, speaking of the God who is the leader of the angelic armies. And when God brings judgment, he is going to do so through many of his angels. 
powerful spiritual beings who will exercise his judgment upon all the wicked, upon all injustice and upon all unbelief. And he is the Lord of the armies. And he's saying, yeah, I want you to know you think you're getting away with it. You are not. I'm coming and I'm not coming alone. I'm the Lord of the armies and I see how you're exploiting people. And what happens, friends, is when your God is wealth, your morals become warped. You don't see things clearly. And friends, we need to understand this. I hope God's got your full attention right now because we live in a culture that is consumed by materialism. There is, it's the message that comes from a thousands of seductive voices. It is in much part of the web of the web. It is on our radios. It's on our TVs. It's on the commercials. It's on the ads. It is always this idea that life is all about you and what you can have and your experiences. It, it always reinforces an earthly, self-centered perspective. Very little actually tells you about God and eternity and the joy of knowing the one who made you and that there is a life coming beyond this one. We never hear it. What happens is it's kind of like that proverbial donkey that's got that stick with the carrot right in front of it, right in front of it. And so the donkey keeps going thinking it's going to get the carrot, right? But it never does. And that's kind of how it works in our world. Not necessarily comparing us to donkeys, but how often do we just behave like, ah, I just got to, I got to, I got to get it. It's just right there in front of me. And you just keep walking through life like that. And what happens is it promises but it never delivers. You see, the insidious effect of idols and that it brings to our souls further and further into despair and to destruction, while at the same time, it promises life and fulfillment. And I, I want you to understand something here. This is how our world thinks. It is the wisdom of the world. And so what happens, we think it's all about wealth. And yeah, we see that there's problems in our world and there's problems in our country. And so what you think is like, if we could just get the right person and to be our president, well, it all work out, right? And I, like right now, we're just about ready to go into an election. You got two really bad choices in front of you. And some people are like, oh, huh, I'm just not going to vote. Friends, you have an opportunity. We have a freedom in this country to actually vote and vote what you believe. And I encourage you, I think, I, my personal take, every Christian should vote. But let me tell you, do not put your hope in a political candidate. It is going to let, he or she is going to let you down. Don't put it in a particular party. You put your hope in God. Yeah, you exercise your right as a citizen and you vote what you believe is closest aligned to the biblical values. I'd probably start with the idea that let's not kill little babies, but let's keep moving forward. But you vote, but don't put your hope in like, oh, if you just get this president. Friends, it's going to be bad either way. You put your hope in God. Where are the Christians? Where are the Christians trusting in Jesus, right? I, 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 I hope you're listening. I hope you're listening because God wants you not to focus on money, but focus on him. And so he says, verse 5, you know, if you're one of these wealthy people that have been ripping people off, verse 5, you've lived luxuriously on the earth and you led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Again, calling to mind Old Testament imagery. And it's graphic. doesn't make it in the children's Bible. But God presents that the wicked, they're just like getting prepared for the slaughter. You keep rejecting him and refusing him and doing bad things to people. God says, one day judgment is coming. And so he says in verse 6, 
You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And what he's saying here is like, you know, you defrauding people in James Day, you don't pay people. That was their food to eat. You may be guilty of putting them to death. How? Because you starved them to death. You ripped them off. And and it may be also that, you know, these poor people, what are they going to do? Take you to court? Courts could be bought off pretty easily. They don't have resources. They they don't have resources enough to eat, not to mention to hire a lawyer and someone to represent them. Whether they, you you know, if you're wealthy, you could blacklist people. You would never hire them again. All these sort of things. And God says, you know what? You've condemned and you put to death a righteous man. And he does not resist you. Friends, all this happens when money is your master. You hoard and you live with a self-centered earthly perspective. But God says, I've got something much better for you. I want you to know me. You see, beginning in verses 7 and 8, when Jesus is your master, you invest and live with a Christ-centered, eternal perspective. Look at verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. He says, be patient, be long-suffering. What he's doing is he's inviting his people to trust him And to actually go and face oppression like he does. You see, God right now is temporarily enduring and tolerating evil. One day he's going to bring it to an end. That's why he says you fix your hope on who? The coming of the Lord. It's very interesting. You read the New Testament and you look at early Christianity. They were all eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus says I'm coming back. He kept it's in the word all over. And you know what's happened? 2,000 years have gone by. Very few Christians are waiting for the return of Jesus. It's like, man, it's been 2,000 years. Can I remind you what Peter said? For the Lord, 1,000 years is like one day, and one day is like 1,000 years. It's only been a couple days. But he's coming back, and he's going to set it all straight. You fix your hope on him. And he's inviting us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. What, What suffering does is call us to truly trust and know Jesus in a very in-depth way. Like it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, he, it's an invitation to know Jesus, the very one who was beaten, spit on, and the one who was maligned and viciously accused and slandered and eventually nailed to the cross. Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, please listen up, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Did you get that? You're going to follow Jesus, you may suffer. If you're saying, well, I'm bailing on that point, then you really aren't following Jesus as Lord. And what he says, who committed no sin, there was no sin in Jesus, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, people were tearing him up. He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what we do. You see, the Lord is coming, and he is going to deal with injustice, and he's going to remove all oppression. And what you want to be is like the farmer. You see that? The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. He's waiting for the, the rains, early rains, late rains. You see, that's how it works. You see, when a, farming is like this. You take one seed, and you put it in the ground, and rains come, and you wait, and all sorts of weather, good, bad weather, all happens. But eventually, that seed creates, like in the case of corn, well, all of a sudden, the stalk grows up. And then there comes a head of corn. Like one seed produces a whole bunch of corn seed, corn. And that's what he's saying here. He's, 
He's reminding us of the universal law of the harvest. It's found in Galatians 6, beginning in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this also shall he reap. You see, what you sow, you're going to reap. Actually, what you sow, you're going to reap more than what you sowed. Because that's how it works. You put one seed, you get hundreds of seeds. Whatever you're sowing is going to be manifested in your life. And so what he's doing is saying, you sow to my kingdom. You look for the Lord. You just keep planting those seeds. You wait through the rains. Yeah, it looks like the world's coming unraveled, but Jesus says, ah, I've got it all under control. I am good and I am sovereign. And one day the harvest is coming and I am returning. And so he says, strengthen your hearts. What we need to do is encourage our hearts. And he says, specifically, being mindful that Jesus is coming back. Whatever it takes to strengthen your hearts. Let me, let me just tell you, in my life, I need to be strengthened regularly. Easy to get beat down. Lots of difficult situations. Let me just tell you some ways that I've found to be helpful. For instance, it's helpful just to renew myself and who I am in Christ. That my identity is in him. My sense of well-being is in him. I've got a personal mission statement that I think of regularly. It just says to walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life we have in Christ. Joyfully and confidently in God. And it's very much related to our church mission statement. I've got to keep it simple so I can remember, right? But I want to stay focused on Jesus. I need renewed strength. I find being in the Bible, reading, reading to know, God, what are you trying to teach me here? Praying, um, listening to Christian music. Maybe some of you like listening, watching a Christian movie. Or having good friends, camaraderie, that actually walk with God and are going to encourage my faith. Super helpful. Maybe I can even be a blessing to them. But he says, you renew your life in him. So I just want to ask, who is your master? Is it the Lord Jesus? Or is it money? You see, what we do with our money reveals much about the master we serve. And I want to be real clear here. You can't serve both. You can't serve both God and wealth. You're going to be devoted to one. Remember what Jesus said, Luke 16, verse 13? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he goes on to say, you cannot serve God and wealth. So which it's going to be? He say, he's not saying, well, that uh, you, you should not serve God and wealth. He says it is an impossibility. It can't be done. Friends, it's not wrong to possess wealth. The problem is, is when wealth possesses you. You can't serve both. You see, if money is your master, you know what happens? We become its slaves. On the other hand, if God is our master, we become his stewards. And what the gospel does is that we realize we're sinners. We are prone to want to trust things like money. And that's sinful because that misses the mark of what God created us for, to know him. That's why he sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins. Believe in Christ. He gives you hope, forgiveness, a new identity, and a new Lord in life. And you don't have to live like he talked about in James 5, verses 1 through 6. You see, how we handle our money, it reveals a lot about what we really believe in our hearts. And security in life, friends, is not found in what you have. It's found in who you know. Do you really know Christ? And one of the things that the New Testament makes crystal clear is that pastors are to make sure that their people are growing as God-honoring stewards of the resources he's been entrusted. Let me trust it to them. Let me give you a text. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. He says this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world, which is all of us, here, 
not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but to what? Fix your hope, but on God. And listen to this, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. If you're trusting in God and you've got resources like you could eat today or you've got a tent or an apartment or a house you're living in, he's given you these good things to actually enjoy. But listen to what he says. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You instruct them, you teach them, you have an opportunity to honor God with your life and with your wealth. And friends, one of the joys of being a pastor at Fellowship is we have so many people where truly the Lord is their master. And they, and they give generously to his kingdom cause. Why? Because they're not living for the here and now. They're living with an eye toward eternity. And the reason that God gives us money is so that on occasion we may demonstrate by our use of it that, frankly, God is more precious to us than money. If you've got wealth, it's really not a cause of celebration so much as the matter of grave responsibility and prayer. So who is your master? There's a throne in your life. It's only big for being enough for one. It's either going to be God or some other idol. Likely it would be wealth. There's a comedian by the name of Jack Benny in the kind of the golden age of TV. Uh, he has this one skit where he's standing there and all of a sudden he's approached by a robber who pulls a gun and he comes up, points it right to Jack Benny and says this, your money or your life. And Jack Benny He's kind of thinking it over and like the robber's getting impatient and finally says, well, and he says, well, don't rush me. I'm thinking it over. And friends, the reason that that's a little bit just it's funny, but it's it kind of hits us right where we're at is because, friends, you lose all perspective when money is your master. It can't serve God and wealth. It's going to be one. And what you do with your money reveals much about the master you serve. Let's pray. Lord. Once again, the power and the clarity of your word, it cuts right through issues. Helps us to see what matters most. And you help us to really examine what's really in our heart. Do we really know you? Do we really trust in you as Lord or as an idol? It's basically taken root in our heart and it's bringing destruction to our life. So, Father, for anyone here who has never truly trusted in Christ, they might be religious, but they've never trusted in Jesus. Would they just right now just turn from sin and self and say, God, I am confessing my sin before you. I am trusting that Jesus is that payment. And I ask that you be the Lord of my life. You change me, transform me. I want to know the goodness of you all the days of my life and in eternity worshiping you. And God, for the rest of us here who do know you, Lord, help us to think clearly about the resources you've entrusted to us and to live for your glory, to be truly worshipers of you on this earth, for we will do so in eternity with no regrets. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.